This is Fans on the Run, a podcast made by, for, and about Beatles fans. And now, here's your host, Ethan Alladay. All right, hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Fans on the Run, on location. This is the first time I've done it not staring into a screen. I mean, to be fair, though, I kind of am staring into a screen right now. It just happens to be the screen that's recording this. But, you know, I usually waste so much time at the start of my shows with useless dribble that I'm just going to cut right to the chase. I'm not even sure how to introduce this man. Um, he's, he's done so much that... What's your name? What's your name again? Uh, Fred Bloggs. Ah. Hmm. And if you've been listening to my show for long enough, you've heard the, the, the heckles I've thrown out. Like, Mark, if you're listening, and I know you are, come on the show. And I guess he's listened. Mark Lewison, welcome to Fans on the Run. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Nice to be on location and not, it, and not staring into a screen. Yeah. Well, I mean, we do have a, we do have the option of staring into a screen. <laughs> yeah, but let's not. I, I'd rather not too. Yeah, yeah. So, how are you doing this fine? Uh, cloudy <laughs> morning. Yeah. Uh, so, I'll tell people where we are. We're in uh, the Hyatt Regency Jersey City Hotel in Jersey City, right across the Hudson from the lower part of Manhattan, and we're here for the the weekend of the uh, Fest for Beatles fans. And that's why we're doing this in person, because I'm here to do a presentation. And you're here to do an uh, interview <laughs> with me and, and just to meet lots of lovely people. Yeah, I, I've made a lot of friends doing the show that sadly I haven't gotten the chance to meet in person. Right. So meeting all these people like Bruce Spicer yeah. and others yes. whose names are escaping me right there now. There are many authors here this weekend, many Beatle authors, many. Al- almost more Beatle authors than the general public. Yeah, and out of all of the Beatle authors, you are one of them. I am a Beatle author, yes. 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 Exclusive for the show. You're, you're an author. Right, yeah, yeah, I do write books about the Beatles. Anyway, so... Which is probably why you want to talk to yes. me. Yes. So, first I'm kind of going to go back to the beginning. Right. When did you first become aware of the Beatles? 1963, uh, when I was four, four going on five. I turned five in June of that year, and you couldn't not hear about the Beatles in 1963 in the UK because they were all pervasive and uh, they were in the news constantly from, say, September, October onwards, and their music was everywhere, and I heard it. And when I heard it, I had the same experience as millions of other people all around the world to this day. When they hear the Beatles for the first time, they're intrigued, excited. Uh, their day is brightened. Their life is lightened. Uh, is their poem? soul is lifted. It's, well, it's all true, isn't it? I mean, this is the effect that they had on people then and still. And that's a miracle in itself. And so I just became hooked uh, from a child. And that's it. So in this period, were you, you know, buying the singles as they came out? Well, I didn't really have... Young? I didn't have access to money other than a little bit of pocket money, which wouldn't have bought records. But it was an obvious gift for me. Whenever anybody wanted to buy me something, they could buy me a Beatles record. But I didn't have a complete collection, and it wasn't until the 1970s that I actually had all everything. Um, but the first 
I think I got EPs before I got singles. Uh, and then I got um, my first LP was Sgt. Pepper, which I did buy with my own money soon after its release, but I don't re- exactly recall when. That's a good record to start off your collection. Oh, well, it, it's still it's still probably my favourite Beatles album, although that's always a hard one to call because it changes yeah. on a daily basis. Care, careful around that topic, we'll, we'll approach it later. All right, but... Yeah, Sgt. Pepper is a is a deeply magical record, and it made the greatest of impressions on me. I, I hadn't, I hadn't, there hadn't been anything like that before. But I certainly, in my very inexperienced young life, hadn't heard anything remotely like it. And I used to sit cross-legged on the floor with the record playing on our little mono player, mono LP, with the, like the dance set. Uh, well, it was Bush actually. Dance set has become. The, the name that everyone says, oh, we had a dancer. Dancer was one of many brands. I, I have to be careful here because I don't want to step on a yeah. Mark Ellen and David Hepworth's toes. Right. Well, um, I don't, they got quite big feet, so oh. don't worry. You heard it here first. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, no, it was just a magical LP to sit cross-legged on the floor and have it open on my lap, either at the gatefold looking at the picture or the back cover which had the words... And there hadn't been an LP with words before, but I didn't know that because I hadn't any previous LPs anyway. But to just be able to listen to it and read the words and just be swept away into the magical land that was that that album, uh, that's a feeling that uh, will be with me for for all my life. How how did the Summer of Love affect you personally as a youngster? (laughs) Well, let's see. I was... Eight going on nine. I turned nine in the month that Pepper came out. And uh, so the only drugs I was doing was probably junior aspirin, uh, if I had a cold. Um, I wasn't smoking. I was uh, I was at primary school. Uh, I, I remember the year because I, I got seriously into the Beatles that year, as opposed to earlier when I really did like them, but would only pick up things as I could. 67 was the year, just as I was getting older, when I could start to buy things for myself, and I started to get the Beatles Monthly <laughs> magazine. And I joined the fan club, I think the beginning of 68. Well, you you just kind of stumbled onto something I wanted to ask you about. Yeah. Your first kind of foray into the world of Beatle writing yeah. was you wrote into Beatle Monthly to get a pen pal <laughs> yeah um, I just needed to see my name in the Beatles Monthly it was one of those how do I get my name in this magazine and I don't actually know psychologically why that was important to me but it was and the easiest method I mean I did send letters for publication but they were not selected and they were probably for good reason I don't even remember what they were but they had this pen pal page and if you wrote requesting a pen pal your name would appear with your address and I'm in there twice in, what must it be, late 1968, early 69, something like that. I was, I was ten and a half, and I made a great play on half, because that's much more important than being ten. It when is. When you're ten and a half. Mm. I'm mm. 19 and a half. Right, okay. I mean, I'd, I'd like to be asking you lots of questions, actually, since you're only 19 and a half and you're doing this. But maybe you, maybe that's another time, I don't know. Well, you know my number. Well, okay. It's endlessly interesting to me how people get into the Beatles. Uh, I did. Well, a... boy, do I have the podcast for you. 
Okay, well, I, I was listening to, I was talking at a literary festival, um, kind of the first literary festival since we've begun to emerge from our uh, hideaway. And um, afterwards I was signing some books and a, a young woman came up to me and asked me to, she bought Tunid and asked me to sign it. And I said to her, how old are you? And she said, 18. And I said, well, when did you get into the Beatles? And she said, from Get Back, from watching the Peter Jackson Get Back trilogy. And I just suddenly realised that's another gateway. You know, I, people got into them through the anthology or whatever. Now they're getting into them through Get Back. Mm -hmm. It's incredible it, how it's people are still coming in. It's like seeing another you know, benchmark. Because yeah. the last one was probably... Uh, 09 with the remasters maybe the I know the anthology and... was a big a big platform uh, for, for a new tranche of fans to come through but uh, and get back and I hadn't thought about that I, I, I absorbed get back as we all did but I hadn't actually considered that it might be triggering a, triggering a new generation of fans and clearly well this only meant one but she won't be the only one I'm going to get this out of the way just so I don't do it through the rest of the show uh, what kinds of other music were you listening to as a youngster in the 60s? I liked a lot of pop music in those days. Uh, I wasn't... I, I, Beatles were always top, <clears throat> but I liked... I still have some of the singles I bought then, um, and I had quite good taste, I would say, modestly. Uh -oh. uh, I bought, in 1967, Waterloo Sunset by The Kinks. Purchases in those days, when you're young, they, they're really meaningful. <laughs> You have to save for them. It's not disposable income. It's very considered spending. It's a rather grown-up record. <clears throat> it's it's a magical record, and I still play it often, a uh, couple of times a week. Uh, and it means something to me as a Londoner as well, uh, which I recognise instantly as a child. It was a London that I knew. And I would say that that and Penny Lane are two of the most extraordinary songs ever in pop music and they came out in a relatively short space of time well for me it's kind year. of a bit surface level but I, I live in a town called Waterloo so oh. that the songs always kind of yes you know hit a special spot. well yes it would be it would be and, and there's, I, there's one group I yes. have to mention in particular yes because I mention them every single episode of my show uh were you a fan of Dave D Dozy Beaky Mick and Titch no not especially but I wasn't against them <laughs> Either, but we used to watch. Um, I used to watch Top of the Pops on BBC Television every Thursday evening, usually seven thirty till eight. Uh, and there will be groups in the studio, and occasionally one or two of them on film. And I saw the Beatles on there, not live, but yeah. on film. Um, and my chief memory of the Dave D, Dozy Beaky Mick and Titch was probably when Xanadu was out. You don't want to know all this, but I'm saying it anyway, because. What is it? Dave D. Dozy, Beaky, Mick and Titch. That's the six names. And there were only five of them on stage. Yeah. And we were going, where's the sixth one? <laughs> because we assumed that Dave and D were separate people. Well, we've never seen Dave and D in the same room. We've already talked about them too much. Yes. I, I feel. Um, but Dave D was an interesting character because he'd been a policeman. <laughs> and he was the policeman who, who attended the crash that, in which Eddie Cochran lost his life. Yeah. Yeah. Let's let's move on to something yeah, a bit cheerier. Please. So get to the end of the sixties. Yeah. The Beatles have broken up. Your name has appeared in Beatles Monthly. Yes. How do you um kind of 
what is your progression as a fan to the point where you want to write about them? Uh, a couple of quiet years, I was still following the Beatles, but didn't get the albums. Uh, didn't have All Things Must Pass till about 75 and Imagine till about 75. Um, so I was buying singles more than LPs still, probably because of that was the limit of my spending power. Um, I was an early Wings fan. I bought all the Wings singles, but I also had other interests that took my diverted my attention to a degree. Um, but I think it was I was back into them big time by about seventy four five, and I was in. I worked. I had left school by then and was working for the BBC in London, and I discovered on the first day I was at the BBC that it had its own reference library and I'd always loved going to libraries and looking things up and finding things and I was browsing the shelves in the BBC's internal re use only reference library it was there for program makers if they wanted to make a program they could go and do their research within the BBC and not have to go out and there on the shelf on the, in the music section which wasn't particularly not the pop music section anyway, it was not particularly extensive was uh, All Together Now by Harry Castleman and Wally Podrasic. And uh, I, as a member of staff, I just showed my staff card and borrowed the book for three weeks. And then I just kept extending it and extending it and extending it. That book wasn't back on the shelf for about a year. I would just phone up and say, can I extend that book again? And that opened my eyes to a whole raft of realm of Beatles knowledge that I didn't have any sense of. Um, it was discographical, but it, it was more than that. It, yeah. it, it opened the world, the Beatles world, in a way that I hadn't it, It's not quite like the, the Hunter Davies and the, you know, the books in the 60s. Yeah. It's kind of the first step in taking it to a new level. Absolutely. It was the first step of the Beatles had gone, but what did they leave behind? What, what exactly did they do while they were with us? Uh, I had read Hunter Davies. I had read... I was a great, passionate devotee of Apple to the Core. Yeah. Uh, by McCabe and Schoenfeld and I love Lennon Remembers and I love Derek Taylor's As Time Goes By and then Roy Carr and Tony Tyler's Beatles and Illustrated Record was another huge, huge influence on my life. As a graphic designer it's a big influence in what I do. Right. It, it's a beautiful book. Its conception is wonderful. Its content is fantastic. Uh, so these things were all starting to happen at the same time and also in 19, in that period, 1976, the Beatles Monthly magazine, in which I'd had my name as a ten and a half year old, relaunched. And I was getting that. And then when I won a quiz at Britain's first Beatles convention, um, London's first Beatles convention, not Britain's, but London's first, uh, which I won principally through my knowledge of All Together Now by Harry and Wally, um, I offered my services to the magazine um, on on any for anything they might need me for, and I was eighteen years old, and they said, "Yeah, actually, we have a use for you." And because the magazine had relaunched, and frustrated fans who had questions but, but that couldn't find answers to them were writing to the magazine saying, "Can you answer this question that's been bugging me for years?" And they turned their letters over to me, and I would pick a few 
that were suitable for publication write the responses and then it would be Johnny Dean says Johnny Dean replies and so you were, you were the resident anorak yeah I guess so I guess so from 18 and, and, and they paid to a one pound a letter were, were you working uh, for the Radio Times at this time? No, for the BBC. Okay. Oh, no, yes, well, you would think they're one and the same. No, I was in clerical positions in the BBC. By then, where was I? In? I was probably working at the film studios at Ealing, which was a great place to work. Oh, so you were working at the BBC in the 1970s, yeah. where legendarily, yeah. um, the BBC doesn't exactly have the best track record of keeping their material. Yeah. Do you have any memories of that time of, you know, stuff being wiped and junked? Oh, well, that, no, that I was nowhere near that department that would have handled that. No, I was in uh, finance, particularly, in, when I was in um, at, the, at the film studios. Uh, and then after that, when I went to Radio News, I was still in finance. So, um, no, I had nothing to do with anything like that. I would say, since you brought the subject up, that the BBC is always unfairly uh, attacked for its wiping policy because the inference is that the BBC was this negligent organisation that had no placed no value on our cultural history, whereas in fact all broadcasters wiped. Yeah. All broadcasters. In America, in every country of the world, and even within Britain, the commercial channel, ITV, they were wiping too. It was a necessity. Yeah. It, it was, you know purely to you know save space reuse tape yes it, it was all those things it wasn't done out of you know yeah it wasn't done with malicious intent it, it wasn't it wasn't and and it's amazing how much actually does survive yeah um, I mean in terms of the Beatles almost everything survives not there are certain key broadcasts that don't yeah. but but most things do yeah and to be to be frank I'm sure that the stuff some of the stuff we think is missing yeah. is out there in well, private hands it's things are turning up all the time in britain there's this campaign called missing believed wiped where people who find things in their attics or cellars or whatever uh, and they're not quite sure what it is it's a film can or it's a, an early videotape or whatever can can return it to this organization called kaleidoscope and uh, they will find out what's on it and Things are turning up all the time. Yeah, mm. it was it was a, not too long ago. I was on YouTube and I found some, you know, someone had recorded the the screen with their like eight millimeter camera. Yeah, and it was uh, what was the band? The Alan Bown. Right. Doing yes. some. Yes. I think it was We Can Help You. Yes. Well, I mean, the Beatles paperback writer the last time they were on top of the pops in fact the only time they were live in the studio along with all the other acts because they've been on the show before but they're pre-recorded yeah was june 66 my birthday in 66 june 16 they did paperback writer and rain and the bbc didn't keep it but a couple of years ago it turned out that when it was repeated the following christmas christmas 66 someone had their home movie camera trained on the screen and there's paperback writer, and it's most of it. It's not all of it, but it's been it's been synced up now, <laughs> and uh, so that even that has turned up in a way. Yeah. So, so kind of moving a bit forward, um, going into the eighties now. Yeah. Um, I think you had mentioned uh, during a panel at the last Beatlefest 
that you had uh, helped with the research for the Philip Norman book. Yes. Shout. Yes, I did. I did. What was that like? It was good. It was good. It, it was a, it was a, an important stepping stone for me. Philip Norman now likes to say he discovered me, and okay, if, if that's what he wants to think, he can think it. I appreciate the fact that he did a lot for me. Uh, and that he definitely, through knowing Philip, doors did open for me, and and I, I, I've never been afraid to, to uh, acknowledge that. Um, as a book, I think Shout is incredibly flawed, um, but at that time I was less discerning. I think we all were, and we were all taken in by how wonderful the book was, which I I, I certainly don't think it is anymore. Um, but. Uh, yeah, Philip Norman was a, a big stepping stone for me and I was always grateful for that. He asked me to do some particular research and it was, um, uh, in a sense, those things that really got me started on the path. I fulfilled the request that he had of me uh, and then when he said, thank you very much, that's all I need, I just kept going. Yeah. Not for him, but for myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so is this where... Um you know, the time of the Beatles live comes from? Yeah, yeah, because um, either Philip asked me or I offered, I can't recall which it was, but it was clear that the date that Lennon met McCartney had been told differently in in the few places it was published, it was different in each one, and so there was no defined date, it simply wasn't known. And... um, Maybe he asked me, or maybe I said, I'll find, I'll see if I can find it, but I, I, I went off in pursuit of, 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 the, uh, of the detail. And uh, I'd always wanted to do research. In fact, the, the library where I did that research for Philip was, um, it's gone now, the building's demolished, but it was in North London in a place called Collindale, where my parents had grown up, and I knew the area, and th- this library had fascinated me from childhood. And I'd been very frustrated as a 14-year-old wanting to go there when they said, you have to be 21. So it turned out that when I met Philip Norman, I was 21 that year. And when he asked me to do this research, I thought, I'm going to go to that library at Collindale. (laughs) And off I went, and there was the answer waiting to be found. And it was a thrilling moment. And it's, it's my life from that moment to this day, and hopefully for many years still to come, is full of thrilling moments of discovery in libraries. Speaking of uh, discoveries in libraries, yeah, um, there's there's two books I, I kind of want to talk to you in, in particular. Yeah, because uh, well, yeah, there's the Beatles recording sessions book, which I I kind I can assume it was pretty straightforward. You you go to Abbey Road, you listen to what's there, you write mm. down what's there. But I, I I'm quite curious about the Beatles live and. Uh, the complete Beatles Chronicle in particular. Yes. What did the research process for for those two look like? The live book was my first book, and that came out in '86, so I was 28. It came with a beautiful flexi disc. Yeah, that was that was um well along the way while I was researching it, I uh, learned about this man called Monty Lister, who had been uh, was a broadcaster and a, a kind of I mean, not exactly a professional broadcaster, but he was he had a job in something else uh, but he liked to do hospital radio uh, he did eventually broadcast on the bbc in, in liverpool radio. hospital radio which was uh, the early days of closed circuit or I, I don't exactly know mechanically how how it was done but if you were a patient inside a hospital there would be a little 
panel by your bed that would enable you with a pair of headphones that would enable you to listen to the BBC and you know, two or three stations. And one of the buttons would be for the hospital's own radio station. And they, people would come around the wards. And I did this later in, in my life uh, when I was about 20. You would go around and talk to the people in their beds, cheer them up a bit, give them a bit of company and say, is there any record that you would particularly like to hear? Because we'll play it for you on the radio station. And, uh, and Or if you've got a friend in another ward, you can dedicate a record to your friend. And so there was exclusive content for the patients of those hospitals only. And therefore the listening audience would have been uh, not much more than a couple of hundred maybe. Yeah. But the Beatles did an interview for a hospital radio station on the Wirral opposite Liverpool, across the water, over the water from Liverpool. Funnily enough, one of the hospitals they did it for is the hospital where George's mother died. So she would have been listening to the hospital radio station a few years later when she was a patient there. And the Beatles did the, and it was their first ever interview. And um, the man who did it, Monty Lester, had kept the tape. And once I got to know about it and hear about it, I offered him, I bought the tape from him exclusively and the copyright and knew what I wanted to do with it, which was to press it as a record and include it with my first book. Uh, because I loved flexi discs as a, as a child, because the Beatles fan club Christmas discs were very special when they used to arrive in the mail every December. So, yeah, so, but the book was, um, it, it was the first indication that what, when you're a researcher and you, whatever your topic is, you, you go where you need to go with it. You don't limit yourself to particular places of research because you have to keep an open mind as a researcher as to where you might find what it is that you need to know and so uh, the bulk of the book was done using that same library because what I did was I looked at the newspapers for the whole of Britain for the years of 1961, 23, had the Beatles turned up in this town was there an advertisement for a dance that they were playing because they used to play dances really yeah. not, not concerts um, they would be in the local ballroom on a Thursday night and then, you know, that, that, that was it. They may never return to that town. So it was an exhaustive process, but it, it, it rooted me in what it, what, what it was I was doing. But then there was the challenge of finding out the dates they played that hadn't been advertised. And that meant tracking down old promoters uh, or people who had kept diaries who had been to see shows or people who had collected memorabilia like handbills or posters or something like that. So it, you, you just did what you needed to do to find out. And I knew that I wasn't finding everyone they'd ever done, but it was a good attempt at getting it all down. Uh, and I'm, they're still, I'm still learning of one or two a year dates come up that I didn't know about before. Do you ever plan on doing the, the revised version? Well, I, the, the, the things I learned between that publication in 86 and the publication of the Complete Chronicle in 92 were added to the Chronicle. Okay. So that one does have some more dates in it than the live book did. But I've learned the Chronicle itself is 30 years ago now. So they're still, they're still turning up. Um, I don't know. My, my, my time is thoroughly occupied now with writing the trilogy so I don't know that but I'm going to revisit you're writing the trilogy? <laughs> yeah a trilogy yeah um, I don't know that I'm going to revisit those earlier books but eventually my entire archive will be available 
through a library somewhere and hopefully ultimately through the internet and then people can see everything so kind of you, you touched on something looking in places where people might not normally go yeah what is if you can recall the strangest circumstance that you have found you know fairly important information about oh um i really don't know the answer to that I don't know. I mean, initially, for for those years, I was researching uh, facts, um, and although I'm still researching facts, I'm now researching color, because the books I'm writing aren't those early books were all list books, and now I don't I don't do list books now. I do narratives. So you you need more than lists. You know, you need to provide the color that goes on top of the bedrock of detail. So. Um, I, I keep an absolutely open eye and open ears and open mind to everything. Um, but I, I'm, this is not an answer to your question, is it? I, I still don't know what the answer is. Maybe it'll it, it come to It doesn't have me. to be the, the Chronicle. It could be you know, the research yeah. you, you've done for these yes. uh, trilogies. Well, okay. Well, with, with Tune In, for example, um, many of the listeners to this podcast will know the name Frida Kelly. Yes. Good old Frida lovely woman who was uh, secretary of the fan club from uh well the beginning of 63 i would say to uh until it closed down in 72 good old frida my annual membership card used to come from frida and she was this special name that uh, and still is a special person many of the people listening to this will know her and, and i'm sure agree with that but she would be the first to say she didn't start the fan club um, before her was a woman called Roberta Brown, Bobby Brown. And I was always intent on finding Bobby Brown um, because when she started the club, she was really close to the Beatles because they hadn't yet broken out of Liverpool. So she was seeing them a lot. Whereas when Frida was secretary, she was in Liverpool and they were in London. So she didn't see them that often. It took me years to find Bobby Brown and when I found her, um, I, she still had a lot of papers and I had photocopies of some old papers that she didn't have. And we sat down and went through all these papers together and out tumbled all these stories, fantastic stories that I'd never heard before, all of which were true, all of which passed my bullshit detector without any difficulty whatsoever. Um, and and but she hadn't even started it. There was actually before her. There was a, a young lad, and um, two young girls who had started the fan club. And I thought I've got to find them as well. Uh, well, there's some great stories here. But I'll just talk about the two young girls. Uh, the problem with finding women is is typically that their surname changes with marriage, and that makes researching their whereabouts much much harder. Uh, if all you've got is the name of a girl in 1962, how do you find her in, you know, 2010? Um, but there are ways, and I'm pretty indefatigable. And I eventually tracked down Where's one... the word for the day? Indefatigable, yeah. First one and then the other. And as I talked to them both, so it came out that for a brief while, in a way, they had actually also managed the Beatles we know about Alan Williams and then we know about Brian Epstein but in between there were these two girls and um, 
I should remember their names, Jennifer and... Oh, bloody hell, I have to look at my own book. Um, Tune in, you can y- find it in the yes, stores. Uh, pause while I look at my own book. I, can't, I don't retain everything I've written. Once I've written it, I kind of, in a sense, discharge it. Um, but anyway, these, these two girls, Maureen, I think Maureen, Maureen O'Shea and Jennifer, someone, it's, it's, it's dribbling back. Uh, they had managed the Beatles for a little while in a completely ineffectual way, uh, which is why they never got mentioned even by the Beatles. The Beatles never said that they had two girls managing them, but they did. They did, and they were actually asked to do, do it by Jim, Jim Mack, Paul's dad. Um, because they used to go and sit with him and he used to make them tea or they used to make him sandwiches and things like that. All real lovely, close family stuff. So that was a, a great, great treat. And um, and also I ended up meeting the fellow as well uh, who was with them, Bernie Boyle. And there's a great story right there, but unless you want me to go into it, if you want to move on, we can move on. But Well, now I'm, now I'm intrigued. Well... Bernie was someone who hung around the Beatles a lot in the in 62. He was one of those young kids who, who befriended them. And the Beatles befriended him. They liked having him around. The Beatles were always open-minded to having people around if they didn't make a nuisance of themselves. That, that's kind of evident even through Get Back. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it, they, it's, they attract, our boys attract a lot of... Uh, coattail riders but well if 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 these people overstepped their welcome or if they misbehaved in any way they would be told gently or otherwise that they 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 weren't welcome but if you were okay if you weren't making a nuisance of yourself the Beatles were always happy to have you around and um Bernie used to be one of those guys who George would say here carry my guitar in and then you're in you know, so I'm with the band, you know, and carries the guitar in. And uh, and he'd started the fan club with these two girls, Maureen and Jennifer. And I knew he'd been around the Beatles quite a bit in 62 and would have some interesting things to say, but he'd never been spoken to by any author and he hadn't volunteered himself to anybody. There was nothing about him on the internet. And uh, I tried everything to find Pony Boyle and... Though I am indefatigable, I, I kept coming to the end of the line and thinking, I don't know what, how, how else to, I can find this man. Well, in cut to 2005, I was in New York and Neil Aspinall, um, may he be resting in peace, had, I'd, I'd approached Peter Brown, who had, in a sense, blotted his copybook with his book, The Love You Make, in 1983. But I knew he was an important man for me to interview nonetheless. And um, Neil Aspinall, I got in touch with Peter and he said, I'll let you know. And he and Neil were still close. And Neil said, Mark's okay. You can see Mark. Mark won't let you down. He won't bite. Yeah, won't bite, but also won't rip you off, won't won't cheat on you won't do the dirty on you you have to honour the people that you interview and I hope I'm honouring you so far so good yeah well there's still time <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> um, and I was so Peter said come up and see me when you're in New York and I was in his apartment on Central Park West and this was our introductory getting to know you session uh, and we then, I then had about 15 interviews with Peter. I still interview Peter from time to time. And he said, um, I got there like three o'clock and it was 
half past four and he said, um, you, I'm, we're going to have to finish soon because I'm expecting a visitor at five. And I went, oh, oh, okay, fine, no problem. Uh, nice to meet you. We'll talk again. Fine, yeah, okay. And I said, uh, he said, funnily enough, this guy's from Liverpool. Uh, oh, really? Oh, that's funny. What's his name? Uh, Bernie. And I went, what's his surname? Boyle. And I said, hang on a minute. Is this the Bernie Boyle who used to be around Brian and Nems and the Beatles and all that? He said, yeah, that's right. And I went, I've been looking for him for years and he's about to ring the doorbell and come into this room. Okay. And so he said, I said, do you mind if I hang around? Because I, I need to meet Bernie. So I met Bernie and he lives in LA and I went to see him in LA and got a brilliant interview from Bernie who told me wonderful stories from 1962, all of which are bang on true and wonderful, full of colour and life and vigour and Beatles personality and character. And you, yeah, I, I knew he was important, but I didn't know how important. And um, I, I still remain the only person who's interviewed him. I don't know why, but uh, I mean, he's out in, in the open now. And uh, he's, a, he's a fantastic guy, fantastic guy. He went in, he stayed in the music business and he went into tour management and uh, about 15 years ago, I don't know what year it was, maybe 2005, there was a Paul toured America and Bernie was on the crew and Bernie's dead cool Liverpool guy and uh, very laid back and didn't make a fuss, didn't say, I know Paul McCartney or anything like that. And they were literally backstage at the first gig and Paul and Bernie are walking towards each other, but they're going to walk past each other because Bernie isn't still going to say anything to Paul. And Paul literally walks past Bernie and stops. I know that guy from somewhere. I know that guy from somewhere. And turns around and goes, is it Bernie? And this was like, what, 2005? They hadn't seen each other since 1963. Paul has lived the life of a king in that period and still remembered Bernie and his name, which is incredible, but typical Paul. And, it was, they, had, and they hugged and it was a beautiful reunion. And these are great stories. You know, I just love this. this my, my intention in everything I do is to make the Beatles human, not megastars, but human because they're just guys who've had an extraordinary time. Speaking about the Beatles uh, just being guys, so mid-80s, um, you start to work in a more official capacity yeah. with the Beatles. Yeah. And I want to know, um, what were your first impressions of meeting them as people rather than mythical, you know, four-headed monster? Yeah. Um... Paul is the only Paul was the first one I met and the only one I met with any regularity uh, and and because you you ran clubs Sam or, yeah uh, he well eventually I, I was editing his newspaper club sandwich for his fan club yeah fun club fun club fun club um, but yeah I had I had many dealings dealings with Paul the very first time I met him was at the Buddy Holly Week party in 1986 uh, and Bill Harry was there, funnily enough, and I knew Bill quite well. Um, and Paul likes to, 
he, he, his way of coping with meeting with so many people in his life, his mechanism, and it's a good one, is to kind of put people into boxes. And so I went into this box of this young lad who knew a lot, knows a lot about me, knows a lot about my career. Could be, could be an interesting guy to have around, but you know, may need to be told to calm down occasionally. Um, and uh, and Bill, who obviously he knew as the editor of Mersey Beat from 1961, and um, so being that we were both there, he kind of you know it's like oh, I'm with the two experts here, kind of thing, you know. Which I, I was a little bit, uh, I, I wasn't entirely comfortable with him saying that or thinking that but it was it was but anyway you you accept it don't you you accept it just to be acknowledged by the man is you know a wonderful thing so I the reason I was there was because he loved the Beatles live and one of the reasons he loved the Beatles live is because he hated Peter Brown's book and he hated Philip Norman's book and he hated the the pro-Lennon anti-McCartney slant that had taken place in literature post John's assassination and my book didn't go near any of that. It was simply a diary of his youth, mm-hmm. where he had been, you know. And when you're living that life, it's a blur. My book told him where he had been, all the places they had played and when, and the order of events that had led to their rise. And um, it had anecdotes in it that he and Ringo loved. For example, when the Beatles played in Preston in September 63, and after the show, Paul drove 25 miles to judge a beauty contest. And for a couple of years after that book came out, they would always talk about that in interviews. Oh, you know, we were we were busy, you know, and Paul would judge a beauty contest, you know, after the gig. And that all came from that book. And, and so because there had been all these books that Paul had hated, and my book was suddenly one that he didn't hate and was just useful to him for look, he could look things up and see where he had been. Um, he offered me a job, which was to help him write his autobiography and that was yeah so I went under contract with Paul in 87 his autobiography mm-hmm. it never happened yeah I was I was gonna say what happened there if you're allowed to say yeah I think I think the the the, the, the headline answer is he changed his mind yeah he's human yeah, yeah, he just changed. it was a good idea for a time and then he changed his mind and didn't do it. I mean, as a, as a creative artist, and there are a few more creative than Paul, if anybody, um, he's always got so many other things going on. It seemed like a good idea when he had it in 87. And then by 89, he's, you know, flowers in the dirt, he's out, he's on the road again. He's got a back, you know, a kind of permanent band. And um, he's he, he's... I don't want to do my autobiography now. I'm busy. Mm-hmm. You know, that's how it was. Yeah. I did kind of put him off it as well, a little bit as well, um, unfortunately, because um, I was asked to write a document ex- containing the essence of what his autobiography should be, uh, what its aims should be, how thorough it should be, how big it should be, how much time it would likely take if he did do it. And uh, I, I, my belief is always you've got to do the very, very best job that you possibly can. And my love of Paul McCartney has always been that only the best will do for this man. And, uh, and therefore I, I said to him, look, you know, 
in all the work you've ever done you've been a you've you've led the way typically showbiz autobiographies showbiz memoirs they're okay you know they're not that good they're often ghost ridden they're not that good they they're typically tossed off fairly quickly your book should absolutely set the benchmark for how brilliant an autobiography should be and then people will always say that was the book that was the best book ever that Paul McCartney autobiography so I put all this down in the document and I think you read it and just went oh my god I'm not going to do all that that's going to take years and so I probably put him off so what about uh, the other two George and Ringo what were your dealings with them Ringo pretty much nothing he referred to me in a podcast a couple of years, no, a radio interview a couple of years ago as uh, Mark Lewisham. So he doesn't even know how to say my name. Um, not much with Ringo. Very little. <laughs> Nothing to speak of. Uh, George Checkered. I, well, there's the one, the one quote that you have said in interviews. Like, there's like, you weren't, you weren't the. Yeah, yeah, I, I. I've had mixed times with George. The first, George was uh, kept a low profile through the first half of the 1980s. He was busy with handmade films. He wasn't making music. He didn't do interviews unless it was talking about handmade films. It seemed that George had a, a bit of a spotty relationship with, you know, Beatle biographers. Oh, yes. Well, George George always had a, he had a, 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 an absolute distrust of all books about the Beatles. There, there's one in particular that comes to mind, hmm. but I've vowed not to say its name on the show. Okay, well, yeah, I mean, you could understand why he felt burned by the few people who he'd allowed to get relatively close, um, or one in particular. But um, he just George's family background was such that you would. You, you would you would allow certain things in your life to be seen and those things were okay but you didn't want people delving into what else you were doing your private life was your private life uh, and no one really had any right to know about it and so any authors or journalists had always been George's attitude to journalists goes right back to well as I say in Tunit it goes back to 1958 when he was 14 years old and it was mentioned in the local newspaper and the facts were wrong and he probably thought right from that point on that journalists always get things wrong. And he had ample evidence to support that in the 60s. Um, so, but in 1987, he was re-emerging and with Cloud9. And he uh, would do one British newspaper interview. And I got in touch with the Observer newspaper, the serious Sunday newspaper in Britain, the Observer and said, if I can get a George Harrison interview, will you run it? And they said, yes, we'll make it the cover of our colour magazine. And so when I approached him through his record company for an interview, it wasn't for Beatles Monthly, it was for The Observer. <laughs> and this was presented to George, and he wanted to be in The Observer, and he wanted to be on the cover of the colour supplement, but he, oh, Mark Lewison, he's needed he that Beatles guy. So... Um, what I heard was that he asked Neil Aspinall what I was like and Neil said Mark's okay Mark's okay he's sensible he's not stupid and then he asked Derek Taylor and I knew both these guys by then and Derek said to him no Mark's okay he's, he's not going to be screaming at you you know he's just going to be asking you questions 
So on that basis, George said yes, and I got to meet him, and I interviewed him for The Observer. And it was a good interview. Uh, and in fact, I had two, it was, I had two sessions with him because the, the, the first session he was running very, very late and I went down to Shepperton Film Studios to interview him because that's where Handmade had its base. And he was running very, very late and so late, in fact, that by the time he had finished the previous interview, there was no time for my interview. And I was also with Mark Ellen as well, who was interviewing him for Q, I think it must have been. And um, Q or Smash Hits? or No, Q by okay. 87. Uh, so he said, I can't see you today, guys. We're going to have to rearrange. But should we go to the pub? So, uh, okay, George, let's go to the pub. So um, Shepparton is a film studio, a big lot. There's a pub on the lot, but you could be half a mile from it. And George had his Mercedes there, so we climbed into George's car and he drove us round to the pub. And we went in the pub and She Loves You was playing on the jukebox as we walked in. And he turned to me and said, I suppose you arranged this. <laughs> did you yes I had arranged it I had arranged it um, and I want to hold your hand was going to follow if we walked in just a couple of minutes later yeah so and we sat there and I we were just having and George had a pint of brown which is a good kind of British working class man's pint which was great to see and I had a pint of bitter and uh, and I was sitting in the pub with George and of course everyone's going it's George Harrison it's George Harrison and some guy came up to George and said, excuse me, George, can I have your autograph? And he signed it. And then he looked at me and said, shall I do the other guys? And I went, yeah. And so he did Paul McCartney, John Lennon and Ringo Starr. And he did them well. And he turned them to me and said, would that pass muster at Sotheby's? And I went, I think it would. <laughs> they were good. I mean, they all used to know each other's autographs. And, and this was 1987. My, I don't know when he had previously done it. That, that's one of my personal, like, collector holy grails. So I want a set of Beatle autographs, yeah. but not, like, an actual set. Yeah. Like, something that Mal Evans or Neil Aspinall or yes. one of them wrote. Yes, yeah. You can get all the sets now. In fact, I've seen it, I've seen it laid out in a PDF of... All the Beatles autographs by Paul, all the Beatles autographs by George, all the Beatles autographs by John, all the autographs by Neil and Mal and Tony Bramwell and others around. Um, so that was all great. And I got on great with George and I, the interview was rescheduled for his office in London. I had a couple of hours with him there. We got on fine. He signed the Beatles live. He said how much he liked it, which was great. And I felt I was in. Uh, but then I started to work for Paul and Paul and George were not getting on in those days at all. George was always winding Paul up and Paul was always getting annoyed by George. And um, the fact that I was working for Paul, George said to Brian Roylance when he heard that I was going to work for Paul, I hope Paul looks after him, which was a nice thing to say. But then the one who didn't look after me from that point on was George, who turned, just turned. And uh, the next time I saw him in '92, he was really unpleasant. Yeah, that's sad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and nothing had happened in between to to make that happen. But he had turned, and from that point on, that was it. Because once George made up his mind about something, that was it. Yeah. Um, kind of also sticking with the, you know, your duties in an official capacity. Um, 
What was the state of Apple like when you started working, you know, with the Beatles? Um, it was small. The first time I met Neil, I went into Apple in 83. I was re researching the Beatles live and the, Brian Epstein used to issue weekly sheets to the Beatles uh, showing where their coming week's engagements were. And also on the back, or on the separate document, would be the accounts for the part of the week that's just finished, showing all the places they played. So there's a huge amount of information in these sheets. And when I was writing the book, I thought, God, I need to find as many of these sheets as I can because they've got the, the ultimate of information in them. And I had half a dozen of them, and they had been weekly for a couple of years. So I thought maybe Neil had kept some. So I wrote a letter to him, and he said, come in for a meeting. And I went in to see him. And just stepping into Apple was a thrill, 1983. And it was Neil and an accountant and a secretary, and that was it. So it wasn't quite the, the glory days of Savile Row. No, it was in... Uh, St. James's Street, uh, not far from there. Apple had moved around a few places, and but it was just wonderful to be in Neil's office. And the phone rang, and it was Richie. And he had about a 10-minute conversation with Richie while I was just sitting there waiting for him to finish. And Neil was a, a fascinating man. He used to pace the room when he spoke. He had a, a phone with an extraordinarily long lead that would enable him to walk the entire room while speaking on the phone. And so he was walking all around the room with this very what long lead chasing behind him. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know how he got a lead that long. It must have been made specially for him. But so, but he, he couldn't help me. But I made an, a, a relationship with Neil that day that I, always stood me in good stead. And then... Um, from the mid-80s, Derek was back at Apple on an ad hoc basis, and I got to meet Derek. And Derek and I, well, everyone who ever met Derek fell in love with the man, and I was certainly no exception to that. But he reciprocated by being fond of me, and he kind of, be, he did become a friend. He actually be, did become a friend. I wouldn't say I was friends with Neil, but we liked each other, but Derek was a friend. And so I was in. Which is why George, they put, both put in a good word for me with George. And why, when George turned against me, they both tried to stop him. But as Derek said to me, you, you can't change George's mind once George has made up his mind. That's it. So, yeah, yeah, From that, 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 that period of time, you, even though like, the books you've written have been invaluable to you know, Beatle history, I think your biggest uh, contribution to the Beatles is past masters do you really think so <laughs> well it's 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 still in print isn't it it's still in print but the the bastards took my name off it they yeah the, name the, the 2009 reissue was the first time i knew that i was no longer quite as quite as welcome at apple as i used to be fuckers yeah they took my name off it oh never mind yeah yeah i, I, I have was... the 80 the 88 one with your name in the yeah. gatefold yeah and I also have the, I don't know what the official name is, the, looks like a bread box, the box set from the 80s. Yeah. And you wrote uh, the liner notes. Yeah, yeah. Those were EMI projects, really. They weren't Apple projects, because the, the master tapes have always been owned by EMI. Mm -hmm. May EMI rest in peace as yeah. well. 
uh, I had great relationships with everyone at EMI and I was EMI's go-to guy for anything they were doing Beatley wise from about 82 to uh, the one album which was what 20 when was the one album 2003 one was uh, 2000 or 2000 was it till 2000 okay that was I think the last thing I did for no I did the last thing I did was the first US Okay. Box yeah. set in 2004. Yeah. But it, it had thinned out by then. I did the one album. And uh, and so everything in between. Well, not quite everything. I wasn't involved in the BBC albums, the Beeb albums. They weren't mine. But most other things were. And Past Masters was my idea. It wasn't. Someone would have come up with it if it wasn't yeah. me. I mean, and, and the track the, listing. The Rarities album before Yeah. It. The track listing, although I compiled it, it did kind of compile itself, which is probably why they took my name off it, but uh, it was unnecessary for them to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and um, I I won't say his name, but now there's kind of a new guy, so to speak, who's kind of taken the position that you used to... You mean Kevin? Kevin. Kevin Howlett, yeah. I I wasn't sure if I was allowed to say his name. Oh, yeah, I'm friends with Kevin. Yeah. Well, I don't see him much these days, but we work together. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, Kevin and I know each other quite well. Yeah. More more then than now, but yeah, we've always got along. And Someone's got to do it. It's not going to yeah. be me. Someone's got to do it, and Kevin's perfectly good enough. He's doing a bang-up job. Hmm. Um, trying to think. Okay, I think I'm going to hit you with the quick-fire questions. Fine. All right. So you want more quick-fire answers then than the long-winded ones oh, that I've been giving you? It doesn't matter. All right. If if you've listened to my show, I always say, like, the quick-fire questions, questions are quick, people make the answers long. Okay. What is your favorite Beatle album? Oh. And I think you've already said Sgt. Pepper. Please please me. Really? Yeah. Who else says that? Um... So that's why I'm saying it. Okay. Because it deserves to be said as well. It's a fantastic album. Okay. Yeah. So you're you're just. I'm playing with it. Okay. I'm, I'm playing with it. It's I'm but it's as relevant as as relevant as Abbey Road or the White Album or Rubber Soul or Revolver. Some, or you know what? I didn't think it was possible. I respect you more. <laughs> Thank you. Please please me is a fantastic album. They never they didn't make a bad album. I, um, a while ago I did up a, a bunch of kind of charts statistic stuff for the first 50 episodes of the show and I had tallied up yeah. you know what everyone says for like favorite album least favorite album right um, and Please Please Me was actually quite high on the list of Good. least favorite oh least favorite yeah well I think it was second to Let It Be we've lived in a world for the last 40 to 50 years where the Beatles second half of the career the post-touring recordings the, the revolver if you like onwards um, which isn't quite post-touring, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Pepper, White Album, Abbey Road, Let It Be, Yellow Sub, Magical Mystery Tour. They are considered to be the Beatles' key artistic years. And what what precedes it is kind of diminished because there is what I always consider to be that seesaw effect of if you promote something, naturally something else is going to be relegated. Mm-hmm. So as the seesaw goes up one side, it goes down on the other and therefore everything that precedes Revolver is diminished because we're talking mostly about the later period. I don't buy that at all. 
with the Beatles is a magnificent album. A Hard Day's Night is a magnificent album. Beatles for Sale is a magnificent album. Good. I'm glad you it said. It really said, is. I'm glad you said that one in particular. Yeah. Yeah. That that one gets a lot of. You know, it gets slagged off. Roy Carr and Tony Tyler are responsible for that. They're the ones who set the tone on Beatles for Sale. I think it's one of their better early records. I, 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 I couldn't place it high above A Hard Day's Night. I, no. I, I don't know if I could put anything above A Hard Day's Night, um, except Please Please Me with the Beatles, Sergeant Pepper, blah, blah, <laughs> you know. But they're all, you know... They, you this can't is can't place thing anything of, above the Beatles, except for maybe the Beatles. The, they are the ultimate in excellence in everything that they did, and every and, and it stands still as, 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 as wonderful as it always was. Now I'm going to make you walk back on that. Yeah. What's your least favourite Beatle album? It probably has to be Yellow Submarine because it's 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 not much of a meal, is it? It's it's no. just a bit of a snack on side one. Uh, but I mean, the, the Beatles tracks on there are, are great and fine, and I love them. But as an album, it's 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 it, it, it's it's not the full deal, is it? There's not a lot of meat on the bones. No, no, because it's a film soundtrack and not an album. Um, so I wouldn't even necessarily count it. Um, I don't know, least favourite. I, 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 I tend not to measure like that anyway. I mean, I just think that they're all outstandingly... Yeah. Uh, it seems like outstanding you're examples. than I am. I'm not cynical at all. Uh, and they're just outstanding examples of artistic achievement, aren't they? They're just all magnificent. But more than that, that's all getting a bit heady about it. They're just wonderful to listen to. Yeah. You put them on and sing and dance to them, and that's really what it's about. So, kind of piggybacking off of that yeah. do you have a favourite Beatles song? no that was quick no it could be you, you're, uh, you're allowed to lie I'll just throw some titles out okay okay um, all I've got to do if I fell it won't be long fixing a hole you, you may be the first person who's mentioned all I've got to do specifically oh well it's 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 a hundred out of a hundred it couldn't be better. It's a it's a magnificent song. It's a magnificent recording. It's just a magnificent vocal. The arrangement, oh, it's just fantastic. If I fell, I'm the walrus. Penny Lane, of course. I fell was my dad's favourite. Happiness is a warm gun. Uh, hey, bulldog. Two of us. Long and winding road. Let it be. I tend to say those together. Um, Eleanor Rigby. Michelle. I absolutely adore Michelle. Um, uh, and I love her. Um, I'll be back. No reply. Baby's I think I'm going to cut you off there. Okay. I'll stop there. <laughs> Let's yeah. see if you can do it the other way around. Mm-hmm. Do you have a least favorite Beatles song? One that like could come on the radio and it's like, oh, I I don't want to hear this again. And it doesn't have to be a song you like hate. Yeah, it's just one the, of the ones you love the least. Don't need to hear it in that moment. Yeah. Uh. Maybe everybody's trying to be my baby. Oh, I love Carl Perkins' version. Beatles' version is doesn't quite do it for me. Um, but even that is perfectly fine. I, I could put that on without objection. But possibly, if I was, I, I guess radio is one method. But another method is if you're scrolling through your iTunes. If I hit on, if I play the Beatles catalog on random, which I often do. <laughs> Um, on shuffle rather uh, if that comes on I may just nudge the next button may just nudge it yeah possibly 
did this may be a bit harder. Um, so you're a Beatle author. You know a lot of Beatle authors. You've read a lot of Beatle books. Yeah. Um, what are some of the, you know, if you can be impartial, uh, some of the better, lesser known Beatle books that you think people should read? Oh, wow. And you can give, like, you know, three or four, if. There, yeah, I don't know. I have, a, I think, a complete library of Beatles books. Uh, I buy them all, and um, I always have. But I don't have time to get familiar with all of them, because they pour in, and I'm busy writing. Yeah. And the reading is actually, I, I, all my reading is to do with progressing my own work. It's not so much getting frustrated with the things I read in some other author's book that aren't quite aren't quite as reaching the standards I think they should um, but there are many 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 fine books on the Beatles and many fine authors of books on the Beatles particularly in America where um, the, the depth of scholarship is particularly impressive. It's not exclusively so, because people everywhere have impressive scholarship. But American Beatle fans have um, not all, but obviously I'm generalising. But some of the authors have done particularly fine work, real proper research. Well, the first one you uh, were talking about as a major influence was Altogether Now. Altogether Now, which definitely shaped my interest in the Beatles uh, and encouraged me to want to pursue research um, you know how when you're when you're growing up the music that you hear in your teens often lasts the longest yeah. after that you're continually hearing music but it's what you it's heard it's all coloured by that yes when you're 15 those are the tracks that really embed deeply well so it is with Beatles literature uh, I couldn't praise Apple to the core high enough it's out of print now but uh it's a great book. Similarly, anything by Derek Taylor. So as time goes by, 50 Years Adrift, which is hard to find because it was only a limited edition, expensive One of those, book. you know, a bajillion dollar Genesis publications type deals. Yeah, it was, what was it at the time it came out? £175 or something like that. It's pretty expensive. Yeah. And it sold out and it hasn't been reprinted. But I reread it last year and uh, it's a joy it's a deep deep joy <clears throat> because to know Derek was to love him and to if you love his writing style and I certainly do then uh, that book is just crammed with Taylorisms uh, and it's a laugh a line laugh a line yeah, with Derek Taylor a laugh a line with Taylor um, Roy Carr and Tony Tyler I'm still talking 70s books aren't I the books by <clears throat> by the likes of John Wynne and Chip Madinger and Eight Arms to Hold You. <clears throat> Eight Arms to Hold You and the Lenonology. Um, Bruce Spies's books. I, I, I feel bad because I'm going to miss out some authors that I'm going to, oh, afterwards, I'm going to uh, be thinking, worry. oh, I really should have said their book. You, there you, are can, many, you can tell uh, it to them in the hallway. Yeah. Uh, many of them are here this weekend yeah. and I'm looking forward to seeing them. Um, Pierce Hemmingson's books on the Beatles in Canada. The, the point is there are still areas where Beatles research can be done deeply that hasn't been done before uh, and the people I've described have taken a deep dive into a particular niche area like Piers, the Beatles in Canada two big books on that 
it's anything you might want to know about the Beatles impact on Canadians and the Canadian impact on the Beatles such as it was anything it's all in that book if I even may be so big headed Mm. it's like I feel like I've kind of found my you know niche area of Beatle research where it's just about the fan perspective because I hadn't seen you know podcasts really covering it before yes and yes so I did yeah yeah exactly exactly I mean the podcasts have proliferated massively in the past oh, couple it's, of years it's a very it's a yeah. very saturated market but I mean I'll bring this forward a bit the Beatles now is a long time ago and many of the people writing about the Beatles weren't born at the time which weren't it, there it, weren't there I mean it's not a necessity to have been there which I argued with George once um, but I do have a concern that books now and in the future are being written by people who it's not so much that they weren't there it's that they don't have they can't have and it's not their fault they can't have the understanding of the period of time in which these events took place mm-hmm. because it, they weren't alive then sometimes their parents weren't even alive then and um I, f- I feel that I can hear it and read it in the things that I see and hear um, where people are just they've, they've as the Eric Idol said in the Ruttles they've picked up the wrong end of the stick and, and now they're out the bush with it precisely um, so and that's a concern of mine that in a couple of hundred years time um, should mankind still be roaming the planet um, there, there's a great video under with that with that concept. Yeah. It's like if if we applied. Yes, I think I know yeah. the one you mean. I've seen the Beatles it. in the year three thousand. Yeah. Shea Stadium, nineteen sixty five. The Beatles win the Super Bowl. Yes. Yeah. Exactly that. <laughs> exactly that. It, it just gets more and more and more and yeah. more and more and more wrong. And I believe that process has started. I think the internet, which is a obviously phenomenal resource for people who want to look things up is also full of complete rubbish about the Beatles because uh, anyone can just yeah. yeah spout whatever they want as fact yeah and I've noticed it with reactions to Get Back um, where I've heard people speak about Get Back and I was watching the same thing they were and okay I'm not saying my point of view is, is the only valid one far from it but when I hear what people took from Get Back, when the, how they interpreted a particular moment, I'm thinking, how did you see that? You know, what people bring their own something, their own agenda to what they see. Some one agenda that I've kind of seen as of late is uh, this um, perpetuation of this theory of of John and Paul uh, being a bit more than just friends. In some way, if you catch what I'm, I, I I hear what you're saying. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's been around on the internet for a few years now, hasn't it? Yeah. And someone's even morphed a photograph of where they're standing close to the microphone to actually show them kissing at the moment. Yeah. I mean, whatever. It's rubbish. Yeah. And the last question I'd like to ask you: How would you like to see history portray the Beatles? Accurately. Truthfully, <laughs> candidly, honestly, um, but with no added bullshit. People should keep their own bullshit out of things. Um, I'm trying to write the history before I die 
three volumes that I hope will leave a legacy of truth about what really happened in those years. Uh, I certainly couldn't be working any harder on it and I, I, I'm not introducing anything that isn't verifiable. Um, but nonetheless, I do feel that the game is lost, I'm afraid. I mean, for example, the first volume Tune In came out 2013. It's coming up, it's eight and a half years ago now, and I'm still working on the second one. Um, Tune In set a lot of things right about the early years. It really did set down what had occurred. And yet I still read, all to this day, vast amounts of stuff that are patently wrong about those years when the author, the writers of those pieces or the broadcasts, whatever, could be looking it up, but they're not. So even though the book is out there, I don't think it's really, really changing things. Maybe to some extent it is, but not as as much as I would have hoped. And so therefore I think when volumes two and three come out, the same will happen. People who wanna think that John and Paul were lovers will still think it. And they're probably gonna think that I didn't put it in because I didn't wanna put it in. But no, if, if I find that they're lovers, I should put it in. But I can tell you that I'm not going to find that they were lovers because they were not. So, yeah. So, but, you know, I'm doing my best. Yeah. So that's all That's all you can do, isn't it? We can only only do our best. And on that optimistic note. <laughs> yeah. yeah, sorry about that. Oh, Ultra you're, gloomy you're, finish to your to your. Oh, podcast. don't worry. Most, I, I'm not exactly a very cheery person myself. <laughs> I am, I am. Yeah. And... Uh, I, I just get brought down by nonsense about the Beatles, but you know, you can't you can't control it, can you? You can't. Yeah. Well, Mark, I I just want to thank you for for coming on the show. It's been a couple of years in the making, and I'm glad we were finally able to make it work. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And to everyone out there listening, it's all downhill from here. <laughs> Brilliant. Fans on the Run is produced by Ethan Alexander. Additional voiceovers by Richard Fulton. This has been a Showtown production. Hi, I'm Ethan Alexanian, founder, president, and CEO of Fans on the Run. I hope you've enjoyed the show so far. I certainly have. Oh, what a good time it's been. The show is also streaming on all of the major podcast distribution platforms like Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and many more. If you're listening on any of those, please follow or subscribe to the show. And if you've enjoyed what you've listened to so far, please leave a review. We're on Facebook at Fans on the Run Podcast, Twitter at Fans on the Run Pod, and on Instagram at Fans on the Run Podcast, where I post all the graphics for the show, including this episode's graphic. If you have any requests of people you'd like to see on the show, questions, comments about an episode, or anything else, you can reach me at fansontherunpodcast.gmail.com. Thank you, and have a wonderful evening.